Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. yes. The Braves yes. have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves, champions. Braves in baseball talk, straight from the diamond. Here's Grab McCauley. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley joined as always by Corey McCartney from the Kia Studios right here in Midtown where we have had quite the day as a radio station. I'd be remiss not to start off to start off any other way than to say a very happy birthday, happy anniversary, whatever you want to call it to Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, 10 years strong. I'm very happy to have been a part of many of those years and to be back here as we head into a brand new decade. So congrats to all of the people that have been a part of that. Thank you so much for all the people who have helped me along the way. And, Corey, I would say you're one of those people. It's been a blast to go throughout the season talking about Braves and Major League Baseball. We've been doing it for about 10 years as well. So a lot of things happening today, even if we don't have an official anniversary date. Yeah, I thought it was a little weird jumping out of a cake, and I didn't. Uh, <laughs> at least now it makes a little bit more sense. Well, and I didn't spring for that. I don't have the budget for anybody jumping out of any kind of cake at any kind of place. But we are going to have a lot of stats, numbers, and Braves discussions jumping out of the proverbial cake here on this episode of From the Diamond. As always, I want to remind you to subscribe wherever you get your podcast you can find me on twitter at grant mccauley Corey is at Corey j mccartney the show is at from the diamond with an underscore on the end and of course at 92.9 the games where you can find the station and unfortunately Corey, we're sitting here watching other teams play in the national league championship series and the american league championship series as we see what the world series will look like and we'll get into it in the second hour of the show but this was not exactly where we had necessarily planned to be as the atlanta braves were ousted after the nlds loss to the philadelphia phillies but it does help us Get a little bit of, I guess, time to preview and get ready for what is always a fun time for baseball fans, and that, of course, is the hot stove. Yeah, and there's nothing better, right? I mean, you just kind of sit around and just let your mind wander about what could be with all these free agents, potential trades, all that fun stuff. And obviously for this Braves team, not a lot of work to do after a 101 season, the first since 2003, a fifth straight division title. But there's one very big storyline certainly hanging over this team in the coming months. Yeah, and it's going to be the free agent variety. That's what we're going to be discussing when it comes to shortstop Dansby Swanson, the headliner free agent for the Atlanta Braves. And I know this offseason came a lot earlier than we'd hoped, but the Braves are once again among those clubs that have to just go ahead and turn their attention to the winter work. And if we've learned anything about Alex Anthopoulos, Corey, it's not that he makes a list and then starts with item A and works his way down. He makes a list and then just tries to check off the things that he finds anywhere on that list in whatever order it takes. Yeah, and he, obviously the, the thing with him, too, is that he basically operates in silence. You, if you <laughs> yeah. hear th- something coming out that the Braves are considering doing this or they're rumored to be doing that, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, even think about the Matt Olson deal. It <laughs> literally just happened, and then everything yeah. out of the other dominoes fell from there. But a couple. He, Things don't leak out of his organization, so it always makes for a really interesting uh, setup in in going into the winter, not knowing what triggers he's going to be pulling. Well, what we do know is that the Braves have several key free agents, as do most clubs this time of year. And, of course, free agency begins the day after the World Series. That's when everybody will officially file for and reach free agency. 
And on that list, you've got shortstop Dansby Swanson, closer Kenley Jansen, outfielder Adam Duvall, reliever Jesse Chavez, outfielder Robbie Grossman, and starter Jake Odorizzi. There are some other Braves free agents, but if I were to make a list of the more of the key players or names that we you know, knew either by coming over via trade or have been here for all their career, in the case of Dansby Swanson, a very interesting list and some decisions to be made on there, some much more difficult than others. Obviously, the first thing you're going to see here is within five days of the World Series ending, the Braves are going to make a qualifying offer to Dansby Swanson. It's $19.65 million for this winter. You're going to see that happen. He has a week after that in order to accept or decline. That's going to be the first thing that's going to have to happen. You have to remember the union, uh, they made their offer, and the league made theirs for that July international draft. It's not happening. We're back to the compensatory pick uh, system. For this year. For this year. So it's back to these qualifying offers and uh, you know, that's going to be first and foremost for the Braves is extending that to Dansby Swanson. And to break that down, of course, it was part of the collective bargaining that the league and the Players Association were trying to get done as a part of the lockout. There were a lot of different dominoes that were going to have to fall, to use that phrase again, in order for that to go away, the qualifying offer that is. But I think that for the most part, I think most people would like to see that be something that is a relic of the past because this is just something that I don't feel like it helps out clubs. I don't feel like it helps out players, to be honest with you, that much as far as trying to map out where they're going to go if they have a compensatory pick attached to them. And I feel like this is something that should have probably gone away a couple of decades ago. And it's convoluted too, right? If you have to have been with the club for more than just that year to have a qualifying offer attached, if you had one attached to you in the past, you can't can't do do it it again. again. So it's just like all these different parameters. Just get this off the table, whether or not it has to do anything with that international draft. Just get It just makes for just such a chaotic system. And then teams, you know, you have to wonder, okay, are you willing to give up a pick in order to, to acquire that guy? It's just, it's just a mess. There just always seems to be things that have nothing to do with one another that get daisy-chained together. I mean, yes, if you lose a key player, a top player, then, yeah, you'd be thinking, well, we need to draft and develop a new one. But does it have to happen? Like, if the moment of inception of that new draft pick had to be tied to the moment that you lose the other player? I just have never <laughs> understood or felt that that was a necessary way to go about it. But we got plenty of time and all the offseason to talk about right. these kinds of things. We'll get into that. But more to the point, and as far as you know, qualifying offers and all those things go, I figured the Braves will, of course, extend one of those to Dansby Swanson. I would imagine he will then forthrightly decline that. And Atlanta's question is, what do they do at shortstop? I don't feel like there is an internal option that's ready to have the keys handed to them. And that, of course, would be, I think, Vaughn Grissom would be the one you'd look at. Of course, the Braves have Orlando Arcia under control, and he has played shortstop at the big league level and has been an everyday player when forced into it in Atlanta. That, obviously, is not part of plan A either. You look at these free agent shortstops, it's not just Dansby Swanson. It's Carlos Correa of the Minnesota Twins, Trey Turner of the Dodgers, Xander Bogarts, who can opt out with the Boston Red Sox. Those are some fascinating other names at this position. So, it's going to be very interesting to see what clubs jump in and to what level and to what shortstop. And if anybody, particularly Correa and Turner, are able to get something like Corey Seager got from the Texas Rangers. Yeah, Bogarts has said to this point he doesn't know if he's going to opt out. Correa has already basically said, I'm opting out and, you know, meet me at the Dior store right, or whatever. Dior. You know, yeah, yes. that, that's happening. Bogarts, I think it's expected that he's going to. He would be due $20 million in each of the next four years. So let's look at the market value of these guys for, for a spot track. The, the contract website. They've got Bogarts at 31 million AAV, mm-hmm. Correa at 31.7, Turner at 33.6, and then Swanson at 24.8. So that's kind of the numbers that you're looking at. Uh, they've got Bogarts getting up to 186 million, Correa at 253, Turner at 201, and Swanson at 148. That's on a six year contract. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what you're expecting there. I, I will say that number for Swanson. 
that's higher than any of these other deals that you've been looking at in terms of what the Braves have been handing out in terms of AAV. That's higher than Olsen. That's higher than Austin Riley. It would actually be higher than they've ever paid in a single season for yeah. any player in franchise history, uh, taking down Donaldson and his $23 million from 19. All right, so placing all these other guys to the side, because we just do a lot of average annual values. Yep. But for Spot Track and Dansby Swanson, the number was? $24.8 million. He's okay. estimated at six years and $148 million. So you essentially, you know, for the terms of our exercise, call it a $25 million a year yeah. player based on that. Yep. And if you look at six years, then clearly you could jump up into a $150 million contract. That's not crazy, and it's not far off from Javi Baez and Trevor Story getting six-year $140 million deals with the Tigers and the Red Sox, respectively, last year. So it the math checks out, I guess, is what I'm saying. So and the Braves kind of know what they have and what they've been looking for here and what they're looking to build because you brought up two contracts that I feel like are really good markers to look at, I feel like, where Dansby Swanson would fit in with the Braves, somewhere in the average annual value of Matt Olson and Austin Riley, which is right around that 21 to $23 million, depending on how far along in the deal you get. But I don't think he's going to be getting an 8- or 10-year deal like those guys got. I don't think he is either. And obviously, it's a matter now of you've got a guy coming off of a career year. And that's the obvious part here, right? He had a, uh, led the Braves with a yeah. 6-3 fan graph 4, hit 277, you know, 116 way to run creative plus. His best in 162-game season drove in uh, 96 on 25 home runs. Obviously, he's a gold glove finalist, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Those are all just added elements now. And you've gone through this entire process, this entire season, and there's not a deal in place. Now you've opened the door for all these other suitors, which is obviously something that we all watched out play itself a year ago and another guy who ended up leaving for the West Coast. Yeah, and I do want to talk about that in just a moment, but I did speak with Alex Antopoulos before the division series got started because it was the most recent example of the Braves are signing a young player to be part of this core locked up for the next six to seven, ten years in some cases, and that, of course, was Spencer Strider, the first pitcher that the Braves had given one of these extensions to. There's clearly a great case for having Spencer Strider be part of your team for the next half a dozen, seven, eight years, whatever it may end up being. There's a great case for Dansby Swanson as well, but what Alex did say about deals with players who get to or close to free agency is it's much harder to pin down this kind of number because those are guys that have already gotten into the arbitration process. They've already gone several years, in Dansby's case, through that whole deal going year to year. And at this point, you're not trying to buy out arbitration years. You're not trying to get early on and give them a little bit more money before you get to arbitration. You were at the free agent portion of this, and I don't blame any player for wanting to get out there and have the leverage of being on the market to get the best deal possible. But that does bring us to that conversation, the elephant in the room, the thing that I think people are exhausted from hearing about, but can't let this conversation go because (laughs) this is the same kind of thing, just different players, different ages, different positions, I think different expectations for what either one of these was going to get between Freddie Freeman and Dansby Swanson. But one thing that is the same, the agency that they're represented by, which is XL Sports, that I don't feel like can be ignored. No, and and it's worth noting that Freeman actually broke his relationship off with them after After, that whole uh, disaster. And Swanson's been kind of steadfast. He says he he does not see himself leaving them, has no interest in leaving them. And and he also said he doesn't think anything with Freeman is going to impact what happens going forward. Right. But I think there's people who are going to look at Dansby's track record and say you had one season one six one one sixty two game season in which you finally hit above league average. So, what are you paying for what he's done, or are you paying for what he's going to do? I think that's an interesting 
question with Dansby Swanson. Certainly, we've seen him be exceptional defensively, yeah. a Gold Glove finalist again, but we've not seen him consistently put up those kind of offensive numbers where he's a top tier shortstop. And I think that's a fair question to ask. And really, as you look at this, and I've talked to all kinds of people on Twitter, if you want to jump in that conversation <laughs> at Grant McCauley is where you can find me. That have said, you know, well, this was an outlier year for him, and his career year was held up by some empty batting average points. To which I say. Tell me you don't watch the games without telling me that you don't watch the games because defensively, Dansby Swanson was an elite-level defender at just about any position based on outs above average and a number of other metrics. But, yes, that was more of a defensive standout or breakthrough year than he'd ever had before. But if you've watched Dansby Swanson for any length of time, you've always known he was a quality glove. Whether or not he got the gold glove at the end of the year or not, which hopefully he will get this year, that I I feel like was irrelevant. But it was a breakthrough season for him, especially – on the defensive side with those metrics that made him one of the top players, I think, at any position as far as defenders go. But he did start to tail off a bit offensively in that second half. So I think those are fair questions to ask is, you know, at this point, when you're talking about a guy going on his age 29 season, I feel like you've already kind of graduated from we can project what you might grow into. You are now in your peak years, Corey. And at that point, are you really going to change altogether that much from age 29 on? Yeah, and you look at the Zips projections on him, have him, you know, around the 24 to 22 home run mark. They got him, you know, as a as a mid 2 to 5, 6 war player, which is obviously a major drop from what he was this past season. Right. I'm not saying we've seen the height of him. I actually think he's kind of, we've still, in these last couple of years, have seen the mm-hmm. player I think he's going to be for a few years to come. Yeah. It's just, I'm just of the, the mind of how much higher can things actually get than what we've seen in this past year. I, I would agree with that. I feel like we're in the aggregate of 2020, 2021, 2022, average it out over 162 games, add in the defense. you got a guy who's going to be a four- to six-win player, maybe a seven-win player, but more or less. We know who Dansby Swanson is, and if he's able to stay healthy, should land himself a good five-, six-, seven-year contract yep. based on what he was able to do this season. So Dansby did his part, and now he's going to get the opportunity that all players play for and look forward to and the chance to really cash in get a big-money contract. Will it be in Atlanta? One of the many questions we'll be asking ourselves throughout the course of the winter and the hot stove. we got much more to talk about for the week that was in Braves baseball and, of course, what the Braves have to figure out moving forward into the winter. This is From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley. He's Corey McCartney. You're listening to Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And thank you for joining us on From the Diamond, Grant McCauley. Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on this wonderful Saturday evening. We hope you're able to partake in the 92.9 The Game 10th anniversary party that was going on earlier today over at New Realm Brewing. It was a lot of fun. So a lot of people that I had seen, some recently and some not in years and years and years, but an awful lot of fun to take that stroll down memory lane and, of course, track the, or chart the course for the trek we're going to take over the next 10 years. A lot of excitement in and around this station, so we hope that you are following along on social media at 92.9 The Game, where you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, you can find 92.9 The Game on the Odyssey app. Find all your favorite shows, all your favorite podcasts, including this one right here, which is from the Diamonds. So, Corey, let's dive back into uh, what was, I, I guess, this week in Braves baseball. It's what we've been calling it, but the Braves didn't really have a busy week on the Diamond because they were done after the NLDS exit. And despite that early postseason bouncing that the Philadelphia Phillies handed the defending World Series champion, I feel like this is a Braves club that we can look at overall and say this is built well. And this is not by mistake, it's by design. This is what Alex Anthopoulos and his group have worked tirelessly to do, to have this great core, to have those multi-year extensions done, and to have this core of this team together for a very long time to come. In saying that, though, I think there are, of course, some moves this season for a couple of groups that, even though they have some strengths, could become a little bit stronger. And two groups I look at in particular – 
are the starting rotation and even the outfield. That might surprise you, but I'll explain that in a moment. But let's start with that rotation. Corey, we know we talked about this time and again after the NLDS games, with the exception of Kyle Wright. The Braves' starting pitching was not able to give them what they needed in the postseason in 2022. That has to be something Alex Anthopoulos will look at over the course of the winter. Yeah, and I, it's interesting to note that, that club chairman Terry McGurk told the AJC that the Braves want to increase their payroll, get into the top five in the league. They were eighth this past season at just over $200 million. That's the highest in franchise history. So I guess you have to wonder how high are they going to end up going. I know everyone's going to obviously – Think well, okay. Well, now you can go out and get Jacob Degrom, who has a market value <laughs> right. of forty-one point eight million a is year. That all? Um, I don't know if they're going to take that route or not, but certainly, uh, you know, there is there is an it's maybe an, an onus to go out and help the back end of that rotation. But I don't know that you have to because it feels like there's so many in-house options that maybe that money gets spent somewhere else. You've already got Charlie Morton that you've already you know invested twenty million dollars on for the mm-hmm. upcoming season, so. I don't think they have to go out and do something rotation-wise, but I think if they can, there's certainly you know there's going to be a lot of big names out there, uh, and, and Degrom is going to be at the top of everybody's list. Yeah, I, I think that Degrom, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on with uh, some bigger scale free agents that are going to be highly coveted by a number of different teams, and some that are out there looking to maybe go on another spending spree. And the one I'm talking about is the Texas Rangers. And again, we'll get to that a little bit later and talk about their new skipper and all that good stuff. But as far as what the Braves have going on and what they have had in this rotation, you know, it's been one that I feel like has been, by and large, a strength for this team. And you hope that it's going to remain that way. I mentioned not just the rotation, but the outfield. Two areas that I just looked at in the in the NLDS in particular and thought, you know, one of the positions in the outfield we know is going is a question mark. Two of them you hope aren't because you've got center fielder Michael Harris II, who looks like he's going to be, and we'll get into this later, a perennial gold glove candidate and a top-notch player and is around for the next decade. To his immediate left over in right field, you got Ronald Acuna Jr., who you hope a nice, regular, normal winter not spent rehabbing that knee brings him back feeling rejuvenated and much like the player that he was prior to 2022. So those two spots are locked down, but I looked at left field in particular, Corey, and this didn't take a rocket scientist to watch the Braves and think, hey, can they get any kind of continuity out of this position? So I decided to take a dive into the numbers. The Braves left fielders ranked 18th in baseball with a 716 OPS. And if you go through the numbers outside of home runs, the, the Braves you could find in the bottom half or the bottom third, sometimes even the bottom five, as far as the production across the board in just about every major category, offensively speaking, And the defense wasn't that much to rent home about either. Then you looked at DH, which is where some of the guys, when they didn't start in left field, were going to be hopefully helping your club out from an offensive perspective. Braves DHs this year, 24th in baseball with a 659 OPS. Surprisingly, two other playoff clubs got worse production out of the DH spot, and they're both American League teams. So that kind of shocked me. But the Braves, they need to find more production, more consistency out of those two spots, and I will give you the floor. 29th in Fangraph War from left field, 28th in Way to Run Create a Plus. It was, I mean, it was basically a disaster. I mean, Eddie Rosario was down even when he was uh, in the lineup as he was dealing with that eye issue and then coming back from the eye issue. Marcelo Zuna was just, I mean, it was uh, was a mess. I mean, I I sort of look at what's what's available to him and, and wonder... Is this where Vaughn Grissom winds up next season? Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, there, you could go through an entire offseason and allow him to get acclimated to the position. You could start him out in AAA Gwinnett and allow him an opportunity to get some reps there and maybe ultimately go to him. But I do wonder if they're going to look outside the organization for that guy that man's left field. And there's so many different options. Mm-hmm. But I want to throw out there to you another reunion. 
Jock Peterson hit 23 homers for the Giants last year, 144 weight and run created plus, hit above league average both righties and lefties, has a market value of $14.6 million. If you no longer have Marcelo Zuna, let's assume that the legal process plays itself out and the Braves decide that we need to go another direction, is Jock Peterson an option to be in left field once again? I think it would be a pretty nice one. And if you follow Jock on his social media, he was feeling very nostalgic uh, around the playoff time here in the last 72 hours or so and posted a lot of pictures about how much fun he was having winning the World Series with the Braves last year and how could you not have fun doing that kind of thing. And Jock was a huge reason for, I think, the overall turnaround of that club, just what he did to energize things in the lineup with some big hits in the postseason, what he did to bring back, I think, a certain amount of swagger and confidence that that club was losing. And we're going to hear from another member of that 2021 Braves World Championship team and catcher Stephen Vogt, who I was able to catch up with this week as well and talking about what made that club so unique. But Jock Peterson is a guy that everyone points to. The fire got lit there. You lose Ronald Acuna Jr., you, you trade for Jock Peterson. It wasn't that Jock came over and then did exactly what Ronald did offensively for the rest of the regular season. No, but he had some big moments. And when it came time for that postseason, it, it's just a different guy. That's why there's Jocktober. And those right. pearls, of course, are already in the Hall of Fame. So uh, throwing all that out there. But you, you bring up Marcelo Zuna and what the Braves are on the hook for here. $37 million he's owned, which includes a, a owed, which includes a $1 million buyout of his 2025 options. So the next two years, $37 million there. You owe Eddie Rosario at least $9 million in 2023 as well. And I just can't imagine there are too many clubs that are interested in Ozuna when he's not productive. Then you throw on top of that the legal issues and off-field problems that he has had. This is going to be one of the big decisions. And to go back to that term again, one of the big dominoes that needs to fall for the Braves to get some clarity on how to truly make both left field and DH more productive positions in 2023. So increasing payroll does not necessarily mean that you're going to go out and spend a ton of money on one guy. Increasing payroll could mean you bring in somebody at a more marginal rate and you're going to absorb a contract and a guy that you no longer want to be associated with. So that's always the, the potential there. I will go back to, though, if they want to go with Vaughn Grissom, his splits against lefties, he hits 61% above league average, could make for a strong platoon with Rosario, who hits better against righties if you mm-hmm. want to end up going with a platoon situation there. I just think having some continuity and some consistency with the Jock Peterson, and then what does that allow you to do in, in terms of the DH? Like you yeah. could use Rosario in that role. You mm-hmm. can give Jock a day off and give him that role. I just think it makes more sense to go out if you've gotten to the point where you feel like you're not going to get consistent play from Marcelo Zuna, which the last – since 2020, you, 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 just, haven't, yeah, you just haven't been able to get. I mean, you'd have to be the most, I don't even know what to call the level of optimism you have if you think 2023 is going to be the year Marcelo Zuna puts it all back together again. I mean, like a sycophant, isn't that the word for it? Uh, that's one of the words, but I'm, I'm not sure it's the word for this particular one. But you'd, you'd have to be well out over your skis and projecting what this guy could do offensively speaking. And that's all you're asking him to do is come in and hit because you know you're not going to get the kind of defense. And you know, you're already having to deal with all kinds of other questions that have come up because of it. But be that as it may, you know, you don't owe Eddie Rosario a ton of money, but it is $9 million and he has an option year as well for 2024. I would be more inclined to look at what Eddie went through last year and say, look, that's a lost season for him. It was tough. We're glad he's back. He had the surgery. He did seem to hit a little bit better, but the power never really came back. And the big production that you might have expected from a guy who has been a home run threat throughout his career was never really present in 2022. I can see him bouncing back in 2023 and playing that role, but I just can't really – you can't sell me that on Marcelo Zuna because I've watched two years that have pretty much not been a net positive for the Braves in any way, shape, or form. So does that change how 
much would you be willing to go into the market to get somebody for left field if you feel like Rosario is going to bounce back? That you maybe you need more of a platoon than you need somebody who can actually kind of be in and be your everyday guy in left field. Well, this is where I feel like the Braves missed Adam Duvall the most yeah, yeah. over the course of the season. You brought up Jack Peterson. Well, obviously Adam Duvall, one of the Braves free agents from this year and who's been a contributor to this club for a number of years. Defensively, he's an above-average player. Offensively, you know he can drive in runs. He's got a penchant for clutch hits, and he's been known to hit a few homers. That's just the kind of players that I felt like gave the Braves so many different options to match up well. That was including bringing Rosario over, getting Adam Duvall back last year, bringing Jock Peterson in. It's just you have less question marks in the outfield because Michael Harris II came up kind of before you expected and really entrenched himself in center field. He's going to be there, and Ronald Acuna Jr. is healthy. So how many outfielders does a club need? We seem to ask ourselves that question every single year, but you know it's just something that we'll continue to mull over as you make the decisions for what makes not just the outfield better, but again, what makes DH better. And as I talked about with this, if your DHs have a sub-700 OPS, that's not great. In fact, it's 24th in baseball, and you look across every single other category, and I know people are quick to say, well, you just throw Travis Darno and William Contreras when they're not catching into the DH spot every day and problem solved. I don't necessarily know that that solves the problem, though I do want to get creative about trying to figure out how to get William Contreras some more bets. I will say with Adam Duvall, he hit below league average this last year, which was his worst season from that end since 2018. But he told me early in the year, like when Michael Harris II showed up, and he was having obviously to play center field so much more that it was hurt. His legs were just not underneath him when he was hitting. I agree. And he said once he was yeah. able to move out of that role, you look at his numbers, and he was actually yeah. above league average in June and July. He was a he different was, player. He was one of the Braves' two or three most productive players, I believe, over the month to six weeks after he made that move. Yeah, and he, I mean, he was there with the team every step of the way through the postseason. You saw him with the guys, you know, yeah. outside the, the clubhouse talking after games. He's still very much connected to everything happening here with this club. I think, you know, if you're looking to, to do something and not – break the bank on what you get in that as an additional outfielder. I mean, Adam Duvall being back can make a ton of sense. It does, and I feel like the Braves have been really good at identifying guys that really fit and, and keeping them around, and you know whether that be somebody who can offer you the, the tool set that Adam Duvall has, which is some power and some defense, whether it's Eddie Rosario, who was a guy that you know is a contact hitter and came up with some clutch hits, has some power, or whether it's a guy like Guillermo Heredia, who just kind of is an X factor for this club and, and does a variety of things and really keeps that club you know, on its on its edge where it needs to be from an emotional standpoint. I feel like all this stuff's important, and all of that has been in that mixture for the Braves, that formula that has helped them win and be a club that did what it did in 2021. You're not going to win the World Series every single year, but the Braves have put together a pretty good, you know, cadre of players and given themselves a chance to continue to be in that conversation each year, and that is definitely what you want. Yeah, and, and again, I go back to McGurk saying that they're going to increase payroll. I mean, how do you do that? and not upset the apple cart, right? I mean, that that's always the kind of the fine line is how do you get better but not mess with that team chemistry? And that's, you know, that's that's what I think has made Alex Anthopoulos, what he's been able to do these past few years, yeah. so impressive that they've been able to do that and kind of keep kind of that continuity and you kind of feel like the same vibe within the team. So that's that's his job again this offseason for sure. Yeah, you're not going to hit on every single player, whether it's on-field performance or off-field performance. Sometimes those things are just going to happen because these are still, at the end of the day, some human beings. But it's interesting that report coming out, Justin Toscano of the AJC having the conversation with Terry McGurk where he did indicate publicly really for the first time that, hey, you know, we are looking to jump into that top five payroll because I had a chance to converse with Terry around the batting cages quite a few months ago and you know, they were very well aware of where they were in the top 10 in Major League Baseball and were very hopeful that that would continue to grow. So the fact that the Braves are now out there saying, look, you know, we see this and we are committed to being a winning ball club that spends more on its on-field product, 
that should make Braves fans feel very, very good about it. Even if you don't go from, you know, number eight or wherever they were in MLB this year to the top two or three, but you can get into that top five and you can be among the top five clubs that are getting into October just about every single year. So that's a lot going on with the Atlanta Braves in a few different positions, but we got a lot more to talk about, including awards. And one man who won't be getting the opportunity to win an award is Michael Harris. He was not a finalist for the Gold Glove. We're going to ask the big question of why, and we'll discuss that next right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Graham McCulley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley, alongside Corey McCartney from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game here on a Saturday evening. We appreciate you making the show part of your baseball regimen as always. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcast. Just search for From the Diamond. Corey, we continue to talk about big things going on with the Atlanta Braves. And, of course, we get into this time of year, the hot stove is percolating. We're going to you know, light it officially once the World <laughs> Series is over, as we know. But that also means award season will be upon us. And award season came early with what is now not just, hey, who won, but it's uh, who were the finalists for different awards. That's what we're doing these days to build a little bit of excitement so that they can do award shows on MLB Network so that people like me can watch them. What disappoints me is when it feels like the finalists aren't always the right people. Now, the Braves had four Gold Glove finalists, and I full well expected that one of those, certainly, would be Michael Harris II, but it's not. Michael Harris II, Max Fried, who has won a gold glove, a couple of gold gloves, the last two actually for National League pitchers. Matt Olson, who has won two gold gloves. Dansby Swanson, who certainly is deserving of that. And then, of course, you got Travis Darno, another first-time nominee. But absent from this, Corey, was Michael Harris II. And that, as you might imagine, <laughs> didn't go over well on social media. Yeah, it felt absurd. I mean, Trent Grisham, Victor Robles, and Alec Thomas are your center field finalists. And a lot of people on Twitter hit me up and said, who in the world is Alec Thomas, yeah. who is a rookie for the Diamondbacks who had a really nice season, but not nearly as nice defensively as what Michael Harris the second had. And I think that's the big issue. I mean, Trent Grisham was great. I yeah. mean, we, you know, you and I dove into this on battery power. He outs above average. He led the majors of the position, but Harris had a higher defensive war, equal defensive run saved, a higher ultimate zone rating, played 120 fewer innings than Grisham and still had those numbers, but he's not a finalist. And I just think that's the crazy thing. There's all these, Questions about qualifications and innings played, all of which Harris hit. Uh, and Harris beat out Thomas in every advanced metric. Yeah. But Thomas is the fight. I just, honestly, I just, I, I really don't. I, I mean, it makes no sense. I don't understand it either, other than the fact that when you got into this thing, they used that Saber Defensive Index, which yeah. shined a little bit more of a light on uh, Alec Thomas, I believe, than Michael Harris. I think it was the third and fourth. They took the top three in those three, and that, and that Sabre defensive index is part of the equation on who they, they right. decide who wins. But it's worth noting that that's updated through August 28th, and yeah. they don't give the final numbers on that until the awards come out. So we really don't know where Harris ranks, but at least at this point, they took one through three in that, in that metric. Now, managers and coaches are going to be the ones voting on this as well. And then there's the defensive metric component that we just mentioned. But all of this, it's never released. You never know who voted for who or what. So this is an award that has long been decried for not being the most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, well-researched and well-executed of the awards. There's a lot that comes with, you know, if you have a reputation for defensive excellence. And sometimes that should be a factor where you do look at that and say, okay, well, this guy's usually one of the top performers. Now let's really dive in and see if, in fact, that's true. But it really came under fire around 2000 
when Rafael Palmero won a gold glove after playing, I believe, 26 or 28 games at first base and spending most of the year at DH. And that's when they started to get a little bit of the, uh, the vitriol, if you will, of sports fans just kind of wondering, don't you just give a DH the gold glove for first base because he used to play there? It's bizarre. But then there's the whole thing about the 138-game mark-off. I don't know if they need the next 24 games to figure out who's good and who's not good to go through the process of trying to get the votes done. Maybe that's the case, and they just need it all done by September because it is a regular season award. But I find that to be quizzical that, well, you have to have played about 700 innings in the team's first 138 games at your chosen defensive position unless you're a catcher in which you have to play half of the games have started half of the games for your club, I guess. And then, of course, pitchers are only qualified starting pitchers. There are so many caveats when I looked at this thing and I thought I would never knew an award for defensive excellence had to be this complicated to figure out. And I think there's so many metrics now when we think about all the stuff that StatCast has available. We could spend the next hour and 15 minutes going over this stuff, and nobody wants us to. But I, I think the point is there's so many defensive metrics now and so much available information that we shouldn't be having all these qualifiers and having to figure out yeah. You know, just all this nonsense with it. It should be pretty clear cut who the best defensive players are, and we shouldn't have to, you know, look at the, a situation like this when everyone can see that the eye test and the numbers show you Michael Harris the second is one of the top three uh, center fielders in the National League, and yet here we are having a conversation. We's on the outside looking. At yes, it. here we are on from the Diamond on Sports Radio ninety two nine the game, trying to make sense of this. And, and look, I'll throw this onto the conversation as well because I'm not saying that Michael Harris the second was the hands down winner of this award, and he just got absolutely robbed. Though I do think that if you're gonna name finalists, he had to be one of the three best defensive center fielders in baseball. The metrics bear it out. The eye test bears it out. The traditional stats all bear it out. Yet he was not. And this is not to knock Alec Thomas, who is a nice defensive center fielder, clearly, if you look at his numbers, but it just doesn't feel like he's at quite that same level that Michael Harris II was. And if you're asking me who should win the award, I do think it's Trent Grisham because he had an absolutely outstanding season in center field and is deserving of that award. It's just not having Harris in the conversation. It just felt wrong. As far as other awards and finalists and whatnot that we have found out to this point, not just those gold glovers, Uh, that are up for consideration for those awards at those positions, but also Austin Riley for the Hank Aaron Award. I really felt like Riley was on his way to maybe lead the National League in home runs, having that true you know, uh, career season, stacked on top of the career season he had a year ago. But he cooled off in August and September, quite obviously, but still a great season for the slugging Braves third baseman. And, of course, the Hank Aaron Award is to recognize the best offensive player in each league. Yeah, the, obviously the MVP candidacy faded down the stretch, and he had what you can probably call a streaky season. He didn't follow it up with the, a very strong postseason whatsoever. But I think his his year felt like a testament to his to what we saw the previous year, which was him go from a breakout player to a, a star. I mean, he had 20, 33 homers, 136 weighted run, created a plus, a 4.7 war a year ago. Eclipses all those numbers, 38 homers. 42% above the league average in a 5-5 war. I mean, he broke out in – I mean, he 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 a different way and became an absolute star at third. Um, I think, you know, this is a, obviously a big, you know, testament to that, and he's, you know, joined by Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, Pete Alonzo, Kyle Schwarber, Goldschmidt, and Aaron, uh, Nolan Arenado, and Manny Machado in this. I'm not saying he's going to win, but I think this just shows the class that that Austin Riley has has put himself in. Yeah, I'd echo that. I mean, sometimes it's the company you keep, and when you end up being in the consideration for these awards, and again, not to belabor the point on Michael Harris or any of the other Braves who are up for the Gold Glove nomination, and obviously Harris is going to have to get right back to it in 2023 and remind people exactly how good he is, I guess. But when you are in this conversation, it does, I think, validate and verify in a lot of ways the kind of player that you are in Austin Riley 
is a guy that the Braves have high hopes for and have really invested in heavily to be a big part of their future. And he's been, I, I think, showing it the last couple of years as to big reasons why they would do that. Now, a guy that the Braves are looking to have back in the saddle and healthy in 2023 is Ozzie Albies. He missed half the year thanks to a fractured foot, came back and was there for about a game and a half before fracturing the pinky on his throwing hand, and that cost him time in the postseason as well. So it kind of felt like in a lot of ways for Ozzie a lost year as well. But when the Braves do bring him back in and have him back at second base where he belongs and is also a gold glove caliber defender, I might throw that in, the question becomes, I think, for a lot of people, what does this mean for Vaughn Grissom? Because it's not just, hey, what's the future for Dansby Swanson? But when Ozzie comes back, Clearly, second base is not an option for it either. I'm of the opinion that when it, you do look at Grissom, he was very different than Michael Harris, but both of them were two of the youngest players in baseball in 2022. Maybe a little bit more time to finish developing at AAA wouldn't be the worst thing for Vaughn Grissom as they plot out where he fits into the future. And that's not to say that his stock has taken a major hit because I think he showed the Braves a lot of the promise that he has, but there was some streakiness as well to his rookie season, which we just didn't see as much out of Harris, among others. Yeah, and I think the big difference between the two of them is when the league adjusted to Michael Harris, he adjusted back. And you didn't see that with Vaughn Grissom. I mean, Grissom could was killing four-seamers. He hit yeah. almost 400 against them and change up. But he was hitting 216 against breaking balls, including .087 in September with a near 40% whiff rate. I mean, he was a negative defender, but obviously he was playing out of position. Yeah. And I don't know how much of his struggles at the plate went into the fact that he just wasn't comfortable defensively. Um, but obviously, second base is locked up. I'll go back to what I said earlier. I, I think there's there's the potential that you could give him the entire offseason and maybe part of 2023 on the field to get acclimated to left field if you think he can work out the kinks at the plate. Yeah. But there were obviously some some you know areas of needed growth, and it was a lot of it was happening uh, against breaking balls for him late in the season that he just wasn't making adjustments to. And I'm just not quick with a 21 going into a 22-year-old season for a player saying that, oh, well, we need to just change his position and throw him out into the outfield. That may be a place that he ends up. And I know a lot of scouts, talent evaluators would say, well, he may not stick at shortstop. So don't get too you know, engrossed in the fact that he may be your future at shortstop because he might just not defensively profile there. But offensively, that's really going to be the thing that's going to mm-hmm. carry a hitter like Vaughn Grissom. And he showed over the first three or four weeks the kind of at-bats he puts on. I'm still impressed. I mean, even his final at-bat of the regular season, you know, which I believe was a 12-pitcher against the Miami Marlins in that final game. I mean, that just to me kind of typified the kind of hitter that he can be. He can be selective. He can be really pesky at the plate. And as he continues to grow and become the major leaguer who does make, as you mentioned, that major league adjustment to the pitchers that he's going to be facing at this level, he's only going to get better, I think. So maybe a little bit of time to kind of take that step back and continue and finish the development that he was clearly fast-tracked through out of complete necessity for the Braves here in 2022 maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing for him. Now, we discussed briefly a little bit earlier about areas the Braves are working on this winter and brought up the starting rotation. And and there's a trio of young starters I'm really curious about for 2023. And there's some names that we know very well. Ian Anderson, who's had great postseason success for the Braves. 2022, not a banner year for him. Mike Soroka, who's missed most of the last two years, finally able to get himself back on a mound to get some rehab done, hopefully heading into a nice healthy winter to come back next spring and be part of this conversation again. And Kyle Muller, who had a great season at AAA Gwinnett. I know we talked about, you know, the Braves could target a free agent. They could look for somebody else to to fill out the fifth spot of their rotation. These are three very nice candidates, and throw Bryce Elder in there as well, because I think he did enough to be in that conversation. The Braves do have depth here. I think that the situation was in the LDS where it just seemed like the, the position group kind of failed them for a variety of reasons and not something you expect to be symptomatic of a bigger problem. 
And I think this is why if I'm in Alex Anthopoulos' shoes, I'm not going out and spending that money on a big free agent starting pitcher because you have so many guys in-house. I mean, you've got Ian Anderson, who a year ago at this time, we were talking about him being right along the lines of Chrissy Matheson, what he was able to do in in starting out in a postseason career. I mean, he was putting up historic numbers in the postseason, and then we watched it just kind of regress regress in a big way in 2022. A couple years ago, we were talking about Mike Soroka being the future of this rotation. I mean, these are guys who you've had those thoughts about and you've seen them mm-hmm. perform at high levels. So are you really willing to go out and spend money on somebody else when you've got that kind of talent? There's even Bryce Elder who we've seen stuff. Yep. Jared Schuster's a guy that's on his I way up as well. I haven't even seen him yet, yeah. And he, you know, he got nine starts at Gwinnett this last year and 25 in total in 2022. So they have so many different guys. I mean, think about the big names on this market. Justin Verlander, he's got mm-hmm. a $41 million market value. Carlos Rodon, $31 million. Kershaw, $31 million. Tyler Anderson, you know, that maybe that's the kind of name that they would be more in line for if they were going to spend money. I'm just with the mind that there's so many different options here. Why go out and do it? The one big thing I would say, and you do have these guys and these options, and you always know that starting pitching and, and pitching depth in general is so key, is that a couple of those names you mentioned, and one I'm really fascinated about, maybe we'll do a little bit more on another episode of the show in the future about you know big targets for one-year deals, because that's something Alex Anthopoulos has not been shy about handing to the right veteran player to bring in. Justin Verlander would check that box. Clayton Kershaw would check that box. Now, Jacob deGrom, that's a different animal. That's a guy out there looking for a definite multi-year deal. Justin Verlander came back after Tommy John surgery and looked as good as he's just about ever looked and is a big part of why the Houston Astros are a couple of wins away, I believe, from the World Series yet again. Would he be enticed to leave that whole setup that he's got going on out there? Those are questions that will be answered over the course of the winter. And as far as some... Uh, reunions are concerned and free agency is concerned. We talk about pitching depth. It's not just a starting rotation. It's the bullpen. We didn't get to see Atlanta's great relievers make a big and indelible mark on the NLDS because the Braves starting pitchers kind of left them in a hole outside of Kyle Wright. But Alex Antopoulos did mention that really the, the door's kind of open for a potential reunion with Kenley Jansen, which I thought was a really interesting comment in his end of season media availability. So he, it makes that stock comment when it comes to, you know, we would like to keep all of our players, which, you know, obviously that includes the NBA. You want 101 games, you might want some of these But he back. went deeper with the Kenley Jansen comments, which I thought were really interesting because obviously they traded for Rossi Iglesias remaining on his deal. Yeah. You do that with the expectation that he's stepping into. But to say that we really liked what you got out of Jansen and maybe you bring him back, I mean, $16 million this last year, his market value is at 13.8. So if you could mm-hmm. get him around that, considering he's coming off his best expected ERA since 2017, average in seven years, the bullpen was brilliant. But think about this. Tyler Matzik's out for the 2020 mm-hmm. season after Tommy John. Luke Jackson, maybe you get him back a couple months into the season, yep. but there's no guarantee he's going to be ready for opening day. So if you've got that core in place and you like what you had a year ago, Maybe keeping that dominant group together yep. is the no-brain approach to how they do this bullpen. And hopefully you're able to throw the former All-Star Kirby Yates into this mix as well. So the Braves have been built for some depth, but you know they're going to be looking for ways to continue to add and add and add. And we'll continue to talk and talk and talk about the hot stove and all the moves that the Braves and all the other clubs will be looking to make. But coming up next, we're going to hear from a former Brave who's calling it a career after a decade in the big leagues. He's a two-time All-Star, one of the all-time great teammates, and a member of the 2021 World Champion Braves. So next, right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more From the Diamond with Graham McCulley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. 
Welcome back to From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you as always from the Kia Studios. We hope you're enjoying your Saturday afternoon and we appreciate you spending part of it with us. If you're enjoying what you're hearing here on From the Diamond, make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. He is at Corey J. McCartney. The show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. And of course, you can follow 92.9 The Game at 92.9 The Game. With all of that said, I'd like to welcome in a very special guest to the show. I had the opportunity to sit down with former Braves catcher and two-time All-Star Stephen Vogt, who's calling it a career here after 2022, who's calling it a career after 10 years in the big leagues in 2022. But he hasn't settled in at home quite yet, as he's been on the move on MLB Network as part of their postseason coverage. Well, I want to welcome Stephen Vogt into the show here. He, of course, a longtime major leaguer, 10 years in the big leagues, two-time All-Star, and you might know him around here as a member of the 2021 World Series champion Atlanta Braves. Stephen, first and foremost, congratulations on an outstanding major league career. I've known you since way back before you made your big league debut, and to see how far you've come and what you've gotten to accomplish, it has been fun to follow along on the ride. Well, uh, thanks, Grant. I can't tell you how much I appreciate just keeping in touch over the years and going back to those Port Charlotte days in 09 and 10 and uh, the Florida State League and all of that. And so I just can't thank you enough. And it's been quite the ride. And I'm really proud of it and thankful that I'm um, moving on to the next chapter as well. No doubt about it. And there's so much to kind of unpack along that ride. And we'll get to those Port Charlotte days in just a little bit. But I, I kind of want to ask you about the most recent experience for you. I know it's closing out that big league career. You're back in Oakland, a place where you really found yourself as a big league player. And of course, being a California guy, I can't imagine it was too bad to be playing out there on the West Coast. Walk me through that last couple of weeks as you were winding down your career and, of course, the incredible send-off that the Oakland Athletics and your family put on for you. Yeah, um, you know, kind of signing back after the World Series and, and going into the offseason with the injury and having to rehab, um, just wasn't sure what 2022 was going to look like as far as being a player. And when the Oakland A's called and said, hey, we're very interested in the reunion, that it felt right. It felt like this is where I need to go and this is where I need to be. And uh, just kind of being with the A's and – made the decision that this was going to be it uh, in late July. And so really the last couple of months, just enjoying myself and kind of knowing that this was it. And uh, kind of those last couple of weeks of, Hey, that's winding down. Everybody knew we made the announcement, just truly enjoying every single day. And the send off that the Oakland A's put together with Alyssa, my wife and our family. Uh, I couldn't be more thankful for the send off they put together. I felt super honored and uh, couldn't have drawn it up any better than the way it happened. You know, I was watching the video where they put everything together with your kids being involved with, I guess, a ceremonial first pitch, with the announcement in the stadium at the PA. And then, of course, you know, I don't know if it can be scripted any better than maybe picking your favorite baseball movie, hitting a home run for your final hit in the big leagues as well. I mean, everything seemed to just play out in this perfect little package in that final weekend there. And I would imagine that as you look back on that, there has to be some level of maybe pinching yourself and asking, is this real? Is this all just happening right now? Yeah, that's exactly right. If you would have given me a pen and paper and said, I want you to write down your last week and especially your last game that you'll ever play. There's no way I could have drawn up exactly what happened on that last day on October 5th. And from everything from getting to catch seven innings after not catching for six weeks and getting to catch seven shutout innings for Ken Waldachuk and and then having everything go right to get me that third and final at bat to have the home run with your kids announcing your like, – I couldn't have even dreamed up that scenario. So super proud of it and honored that the A's did what they did those last few games. 
We're chatting with longtime big league catcher and former Atlanta Braves Stephen Vote here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And I know that we're talking about how everything ended in Oakland, but as I knew you and as, as I got to know you, this was way back in, I believe, 2009. I was doing some play-by-play broadcasting, trying to get my career going. And you, of course, were down in Port Charlotte as a Rays farmhand at that time. 2009 didn't offer a lot for you because you you underwent a shoulder surgery because of an injury very early in the season. And then you came back in 2010. And I, I wonder if you'd kind of share what that was like at that time, because I know for your career and as you're a, a minor leaguer moving through the ranks, I know you wanted to go at a certain speed, but it doesn't always work that way. What was kind of the mindset as you came back in 2010, still an A ball, but knowing that the big goal and the big journey might still be ahead of you? Yeah, you know, um, those two years were so pivotal for me, Grant. They really were in Port Charlotte. And, you know, going in 09, I was excited. I had a great year in low A. I'd put myself on the map. The Rays were going to let me catch a little bit. It was going to be my catapult year. I was 24 years old, so I was older for high A. And unfortunately, sustained the shoulder injury and had surgery. But that ended up, when I look back, that was the best thing that could have ever happened in my career. And I asked permission to stay in the dugout to be able to be with the team during home games because when they traveled, I had to stay back in Port Charlotte rehab, but it allowed me this opportunity to get coaching experience in some way. I leaned on Jim Morrison and Joe Zeckley and Bill Maloney as the coaching staff. I really leaned on them for their expertise and their knowledge. And what it did is it helped me to learn so much about myself and about the game that I would have never had the opportunity to do had I been healthy. And that catapulted me into 2010 where I thought, hey, you're coming back, you're 25, you're going back to high A. Let's learn as much as we can, have fun playing, because this is probably your last year playing. And I played myself into a great role. We fortunately had some prospects struggle at the same time, which allowed me to play more and uh, played myself into an everyday role in the Rays organization. But if it wasn't for those two years in Port Charlotte, I would have never had the chance to learn the things I did and to catapult me into the basically the path that set out for the rest of my career. Yeah, as it turned out, when you came back for that spring and back to that high A ball club, you were less than two years away from joining the Rays and making their roster out of spring training because when you went from high A, where you won a batting title, you went to double A, where you hit a bunch of homers, knocked in a bunch of runs, and made it to triple A, and the next thing you know, you're knocking on the door. Your time in Tampa Bay wasn't too long, though, and that will kind of take us back to where we began, which was in Oakland. As you make the big leagues and you've played your whole minor league time with a certain club, growing up in that organization with certain players, and then the road takes you somewhere else, what was it like getting traded out to Oakland, and how much of maybe a blessing in disguise did that turn out to be? It, it was the greatest thing that could have ever happened. And, you know, uh, Hein Bloom and I still joke about it because uh, the Rays kind of moved on from me pretty quickly. And, you know, we still joke about, hey, we should have given you a little longer look. And I said, hey, no hard feelings here. Because when I got to Oakland, Dan Feinstein, assistant GM, called me and said, hey, we know you can hit and we're going to give you an opportunity to catch. Go show us you can catch. And the second I heard those words, I got so excited. I'd always yeah. wanted to catch. I played outfield first, kind of coming up through the minor leagues and hadn't got a ton of time to catch. And the A's gave me an opportunity to catch every single day in Sacramento and AAA and ended up getting called up later that year, got my first hit, caught playoff games and ended up having a five-year run with the A's that set me up for the rest of my major league career and got me prepared for the run that I was able to do going into Atlanta. So I credit every single step, every single place I've been to helping contribute to The little role that I played in Atlanta, uh, I realize it wasn't a huge role, but the little role that I played that did help us win a World Series. 
I think baseball is really fun in that sometimes once you've gone through all of the different steps along the road, as I keep saying, and I I like that analogy because I do feel like these careers are certainly a journey. Sometimes even through some of the setbacks, you end up getting rewarded by being put in a place in which you get an opportunity to catch every day. In Oakland, for example, you become a two-time All-Star, you get some playoff experience, you make a few more stops, but then while your time in Atlanta was probably not what you had in mind because of the injury, to be dropped into a club on its way to winning a World Series title, that kind of feels like kind of a nice reward if you got to be at a place and close out a year and have a chance to be around an atmosphere to go all the way and win everything. That had to be another one of those kind of surreal moments uh, along the journey of your career. Absolutely. You know, I think when I signed my contract in Arizona, I was so excited to be a Diamondback. I thought we were going to have a two-year run with a chance to win a World Series and COVID hit and it really, it affected everybody. I'm not going to try and say we're the only team, but it really affected us a lot. And after 25 games, we were struggling and um, the organization had to go in a different direction and kind of pulled the plug on a team that we thought was built for a world series. And so going into 21, we were kind of down and I was not having a great year. And when Alex Anthopoulos called Mike Hazen and pulled off the trade, I got rejuvenated. And I said, I get to be an Atlanta Brave. I was the first words I said to Alyssa, my wife, when I called her, called her in the middle of the game when I got traded. I said, guess what? We get to be Atlanta Braves. There's something so true and so special, especially as a 90s kid that grew up watching TBS, watching the Braves. And I couldn't have been more honored to put on that uniform. I know I didn't play to my best abilities, and but I did my job. I came in and I helped that clubhouse, and I solidified that catching spot until Travis came back and took over. And unfortunately, it ended with an injury, but I was right there with those guys every step of the way, helping any way I could. And that was something that when people ask my favorite moments as a baseball player is game six in Houston, that final out. I don't care if I was playing, watching, (laughs) celebrating. It doesn't matter. That was the greatest moment of my baseball career because I helped contribute to a World Series win. No, you most certainly did. And that felt like a club. And and you can speak to this much more so than I can just as watching along with it. But it just felt like a club that brought together so many special and talented players and personalities. And there's something to be said for as we watch the playoffs play out every year, there's teams that win 100 games. There's teams that win 87, 88 games that make it into the postseason. And if things go right for you, if you work hard and win those games and you're the last team left standing and to get there, it takes so many individual efforts to get that team over the top. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what made the 2021 Braves so special or so unique compared to maybe other teams you've played with or against. I think it was unique in the fact that, you know, you lose a player like Ronald Acuna Jr. halfway through the year, you know, at the time, one of the best players in baseball is having an MVP caliber season. And um, and then you bring in Jock Peterson, you bring in all these outfielders and everybody clicks and that, the bullpen or arm barn and whatever you want to call it, the night shift. <laughs> yeah. they, it didn't matter who stepped up. Somebody was going to step up that day and, What made it so special was every single person that put on that uniform contributed, whether it was in the clubhouse, whether it was on the field, whether it was on defense. You know, Guillermo Heredia was the emotional leader of that clubhouse and of that dugout. And I don't think he gets enough credit for what he brings to the table for the Atlanta Braves franchise. And to me, it was just such a special group. And we all clicked at the same time and we all got going right at the same time, got hot and Uh, went out in the playoffs and just surprised everybody. It was such a great run, and it's something that you see every year, the team that gets hot at the right time, but we were able to finish it off, and I think that's the difference. 
Yeah, and there's so many plays and performances and moments that the team looks back on, that fans look back on. But there's one in particular that sticks out in my mind as a kid that grew up in the 90s watching the Braves and even was watching the Braves in the 80s when they weren't as good. But just knowing that all that success they had in the 90s, they did win the World Series in 1995. And I think that was as much of a sigh of relief as anything else. But to wait about a quarter of a century to have the opportunity to win another one, the moment that stands out to me in that Game 6 is Jorge Soler hitting that home run out of the stadium in Houston. Uh, where were you when that home run left, and what was your immediate reaction? Because to me, that finally felt like, oh, my goodness, I, they're going to win this thing. They're going to win the World Series. Yeah, I can tell you exactly where I was. I was standing on the bench, leaning against the rail, right up against that middle opening into the third-base dugout next to Josh Tomlin. Mm-hmm. And right when he hit that ball, Josh Tomlin and I just both hugged each other and just started screaming, uh, and just watch that ball fly somewhere out of Houston because it uh, definitely yeah. might still be going now. But um, <laughs> remember those moments. And then obviously we kept adding on. And when Freddie hit the exclamation point homer, I remember Josh Tomlin and I just kind of talking through that whole game. We were talking about a lot of different things. and But just reflecting over the course of that season. And, you know, I asked him a ton of questions just about, hey, last year and your time in Atlanta, what was it? Just – kind of reminiscing and it was kind of nice to have that lead so we could kind of enjoy the victory game rather than being on pins and needles the whole time and but I just remember this that sheer feeling of elation and Max when he got out of that first inning Mm -hmm. unscathed it was like we're winning and then Solaire came up and hit that bomb and it was like yep this is it yeah, just one of the many surreal moments on the path to a World Series championship for the 2021 Braves. Wrapping up here with all-star catcher Stephen Vogt. I guess as you take the move or, or make the transition, I should say, from your playing days to whatever comes next, I know that you know being a husband, being a father, those are all important things for you. But when it comes to Major League Baseball and maybe your life in and around baseball, what do you foresee in the future? What would you like to do? Is it coaching, managing? Is it being perhaps a part of broadcast? Because all those things seem to be right out there in front of you when the time's right. Yeah, I, I feel super blessed, Grant, that I've been able to show kind of how much I love the game of baseball. It's what I go back to, whether it's managing, coaching, broadcasting. I love this game. I'm passionate about it and the people who play it. And uh, my ultimate career goal would be to, to manage. I, I feel like I've experienced so many great things as a player. I've been around phenomenal managers, phenomenal coaches, um, just that I've learned from and soaked up all of their good stuff and kind of taken and making my own. And I feel very confident that one day I can be a very successful and good major league manager. Now the path to get there, what, I don't really know what that's going to take. Um, I can see myself in the front office somewhere. I can see myself coaching somewhere. I can see myself doing media. I'm, you know, two weeks into this whole retirement thing. And, uh, <laughs> it, you know, I've been fortunate to do some MLB network work and have some good conversations with some people, but I really just kind of want to take my time and see what's out there. And, the only thing I know 100% that I would do right now is manage. And um, I know that that's a long shot, but you know what? I have a long shot. So why wouldn't I set my sights there and then we can adjust accordingly from there. But, uh, you know, I, I want to give back to this beautiful game that's given me so much. And I've been through just about everything you can go through as a player. And I've watched some great managers do it. And I've watched some great players do it. And I've been able to lean on them. And I just feel like from my experience, I'm going to be able to help a lot of people and help grow this beautiful, beautiful game that we love. And that's what I want to do, whether it's behind a camera or on the field or whatever it might be doing. I want to help grow this beautiful game. 
I don't know that it matters if you're a player, if you're a fan, if you're a front office executive, if you're a stadium employee. I think this game connects us so much. It gives us so much, and it is, in fact, a beautiful game. I'm excited to see what comes next for you. It's been my genuine pleasure to know you for as long as I have, and I've been so excited to watch each of these stops along the way and even have the road bring you to Atlanta here for a World Series title. I think we can all enjoy that. Stephen Vogt, thank you so much. I appreciate all your time, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon and seeing what is, in fact, next for you. Thanks, Grant. It's always fun catching up. He's all-star catcher Stephen Vogt. This is From the Diamond. We've got much more coming up on the show as we discuss everything on the road to the World Series. We'll be back right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We appreciate you making us part of your weekend as we keep you company for a couple of hours of baseball talk on a Saturday afternoon and evening on what was a very big day for the station. Celebrating 10 years of 92.9 The Game. So here, if you want to virtually raise your glass for another 10 years, we appreciate that. And we toast you, the listeners out there, because you help us do what we do, because you're the ones out there listening to all the talk that we have here on the show. It's all about baseball, particularly that we're usually focused on the Atlanta Braves. But of course, we know the postseason, it goes on without the Braves, who uh, unfortunately had an earlier exit than they had planned in the NLDS against the Philadelphia Phillies. Meanwhile, if we do look at this NLCS matchup, Corey, I've been really fascinated to see which way it could go because I felt like these are two very evenly matched clubs. And thus far, it's been a nice back and forth series between them. But the Phillies, They've given the Padres a dose of exactly what they gave the Braves. There's two-out magic. There's two-strike magic. The Phillies get hits when they need to get hits, is the long story short. And they have gotten the pitching performances they needed in the bullpen that was supposed to be maybe a bit shaky or still a weakness for the Phillies. I have not seen signs of those cracks. Have you? Absolutely not. I mean, sir, I saw uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez was fantastic. I mean, that six-out save to Clint, you know, I thought the symmetry I mentioned to you was really cool. He gets that six-out save on October 21st to give them a 2-1 lead. October 21st of 1980, Tub McGraw records a six-out save to clinch the Phillies' first World Series. So a nice little bit of symmetry there for the Phillies. But you mentioned that two-out magic. I mean, during the regular season, they were eighth in average with two outs. They were hit almost 300 against the Braves in the division round mm-hmm. with two outs. And then they go out and just do that exact same thing uh, against uh, the Padres in in, uh, in game three, uh, in game two. Excuse me, that was game three. It was game three. Yeah, I mean, yep. there's just too much going on. Um, <laughs> you know, they go. I mean, they they went to that fourth inning though. They were one for twenty two with two outs in that series. So yeah. they just put it all together in that moment. And now you know they're. I mean, they're just rolling along, and uh, you get those two starters that they mm-hmm. have, those two workhorses in Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler, and that is a deadly combination when you can also get what they're getting from that bullpen right now. It really is. And we saw Ranger Suarez, who had not started since the day that he got that game one start against the Braves in the NLDS, and walked five guys and somehow skated out of it, allowing just the one run on the Travis Darno home run. He looked much better against the Padres in his second career postseason yep. start. Did not have the problems with all the walks and gave the Phillies the kind of start they needed to set up that bullpen for some success. And, of course, in this series, the Phillies have David Robertson, who is now fully recovered from celebrating Bryce Harper's homer in the wild card round. And he's an important part of their bullpen as well, especially going forward. So they're even a little bit stronger in an area which is extremely important. But I have an, another question to ask about the Phillies and their offense. And it's not just the two-out magic. These are some guys that can hit some home runs. We've noticed that. Talked with Stephen Vogt there a little bit about Jorge Soler's home run in Houston, a, a ball that may or may not have landed, may or may not be orbiting Earth right now. I don't know, but Kyle Schwarber hit one of those. Estimated 488 feet. 
That is just not a, a home run that you see at Petco Park. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, they, and what was the the exit velocity on it was what 117 miles an hour, 119.7, a 25 degree launch angle, went 488, a 5.6 second hang time. Um, by the way, just so you know, it had 100% hit probability. So there was oh, no good. <laughs> yeah, there was expected batting average. Was it a thousand? Yeah, uh, I would hope yeah so. so that was a that was a big time blast from him. By the way, Gene Segura playing in his first postseason in his 11-year career. Yeah. How about the day that he had uh, in Game 3? I mean, you think about, you know, that he blows that routine double play, then he hits a go-ahead single, then a couple seconds after that he gets picked off at first base, and then he makes that dazzling, you know, diving, diving stop play. on the uh, Hassan Kim uh, sharp ground ball in the, in the seventh, ends up jumping up and down, flexing all that fun stuff. Um, man, he's bringing a lot of energy with that Phillies team without question. That Game 3 felt a little bit uh, like what the Braves were dealing with at times. It's, it's a microcosm of you know, the Phillies were getting just enough hits. The Braves' offense was struggling. Padres' offense was struggling. When you thought you might be able to sneak something through, well, not so fast because a team that was supposed to be a collection of lead gloves, they show up and make plays when they need to. And that's a team that did get better defensively. And I know people may be tired of hearing about the Philadelphia Phillies, and I promise we're going to stop talking about them. But they're still playing right now, and that's a credit to a lot of the things that they did and some of the kids that they brought up as well. I mean, Bryson Stott stepping in at shortstop, becoming the starter there, that was a big move for them because Didi Gregorius had been the incumbent and was owed quite a little chunk of money, and the Phillies decided to go ahead and take the loss on that, hand the keys to Bryson Stott. I feel like he has been a very steady hand for them, defensively speaking. I feel like uh, Matt Vierling, who they put out in center field, we saw him run down a couple of balls in the NLDS that certainly didn't help the Braves' cause, in particular Michael Harris. I can think of that one right off the top of my head. And then you've got Bryce Harper back in the mix as your DH. And it's amazing to see what the Phillies were able to do to a lesser extent than what the Braves had to deal with, with losing Ronald Acuna Jr. a year ago, losing their superstar player, and then having to make a whole bunch of trades. The Phillies didn't go remake their outfield to try to figure out a way to get uh, you know, get over losing Bryce Harper to that broken thumb for three months. They just kind of had to call on guys who were really already under contract there or start getting some maybe to perform a little bit more in the case of a Schwarber and a Nick Castellanos that were signed in the offseason. Yeah, Castellanos to me is the the big one, right? I mean, you just waited to find out when he was ever going to put it together. It was just a really rough season for him, and obviously, you know, him having to play in the outfield, uh, you know, with uh, with Bryce Harper's inability to throw. Right. We've talked about this before, but think about the position that the Phillies would be in if there was no DH in the National League. I mean, Bryce yeah. Harper's season – would have been over months ago. He would have had Tommy John surgery. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't even be talking about any of this stuff. And here he is, you know, just a few steps away from a World Series. So you're telling me the Phillies are making it work with three DHs in their lineup. Pretty much, And two yeah. of them play in the field. Yeah. Well, they, they are. And they really are. But it, that seemed to be one of the things people pointed at immediately and said, look, they're just not going to be able to do it. But up the middle, I feel like they've been strong. Segura's a pretty good second baseman. I'm not going to tell you he's the best fielding guy, but he's a, he's a capable second baseman. Well, what Stock gives them at shortstop with what they're getting in center field, and with JT Romuto behind the plate doing his thing, this is a club that's a little bit better than you might realize at times. I mean, it's still going to show up. Reese Hoskins is not a great defensive first baseman. Alec Bohm, I don't think, is a great defensive third baseman either, but they make it work, and they've certainly made it work at the plate in a big-time way. Speaking of which, over in the ALCS, the Astros have been working the New York Yankees over in the first couple of games. The series has moved back over uh, to New York now, and the Yankees are going to try to get themselves back into this. They're going to have to find a few base hits in this one and a few runs if they want to get back into the series and really make a run at a club that they just can't seem to get past. I mean, we know there's history between the Astros and the Yankees and the ALCS of, uh, of yesteryear and uh, the things that were attached to yesteryear's ALCS matchup between these two teams, but uh, thus far... Corey, it looks hard for me to say that there's a team out there that is better suited and and better built and maybe picking its 
uh, right time to peak than the Houston Astros are rolling into October and through October. Here. I mean, there's there's just no holes with this team, right? And then you take, you know, a, a club in the in the Astros that you know can just kind of take what the Yankees struggle with and just amplify it. Yeah, Thirty strikeouts through the first uh, eighteen uh, innings of the LCS, and then. You know, you take a, a Yankees team that just relies so much on the home run and one that's not great in terms of contact, and you put so much more pressure on them and elevate every at bat because guys just can't get on base to make anything happen. And there's just so many, you know, so many key factors in that lineup that just aren't producing right now. And it just feels like everything for them um, is just kind of just this big, you know, avalanche of trouble. And, you know, I, I, I think they're going to take at least one game at home. I don't see them getting swept out of this series, but I just can't look at this Astros team and say, okay, that's where you can exploit them in this postseason. They are just yeah. they are far and away the best team remaining in baseball. I mean, this is a club that finds its way into the ALCS uh, every single year, what, for six years in a row now, Corey, and they find their way into the World Series quite obviously. And we know, again, there's some subtext to the World Series that they won, but you know, it, it's a team that has done pretty well for itself and overcome if there were questions about the methods. At this point, I don't really think you can have a whole lot of questions. I mean, these are some talented baseball players. You give yep. them another advantage, that might make them a little bit better. But this past couple of years, that's not what we're talking about anymore. It's a, a team that continues to just find ways to win. And the Braves took it to them in the World Series last year, and it seemed to be that team of destiny. So as you look, you know, forecasting through, I feel like the Astros are going to get past the Yankees. We'll find out, though, over the next four or five games if this ALCS goes the distance, which I'm always rooting for. And on the NL side, I'm kind of wondering if the Padres are going to find a way to counterpunch the Phillies and, and push them the distance, or are the Phillies, who are two wins away from the World Series for the first time in quite a while, on their way to the Fall Classic? And if if so, for both of those teams, to make a long question longer, do you feel like one or both of them match up well with the Houston Astros to perhaps be the kryptonite? So you look at the way that Rob Thompson approached Game 3, right? They So they split the Wheeler-Nola starts, and then he basically goes all in on Game 3 with Ranger Suarez on yep. the mound, and now you go into Game 4, they've got Bailey, Bailey Falter, they're only expecting him you know, maybe to get through the lineup once, and then you're going to go back to that bullpen and see what you can get out of them. I, I think the fact that you, can, you know you're potentially going to have Nola and Wheeler again, that to me just ultimately is what decides this, this series for the Phillies. I think they went all in on the game that they had to mm-hmm. win with Suarez. And now you know you got your horses coming back. I think they're ultimately going to get through. And that that starting pitching is just going to be fascinating if them as if it's them and the Astros because you're going to have Verlander, you're going to have Framber Valdez, you're going to have Javier McCullers, mm-hmm. and on and on and on for the Astros. And then you've got those two guys you know yep. are coming out there potentially four games in a seven game series uh, for the Phillies. I mean it's I mean it's it, that that's going to be potentially a fascinating matchup. You know, and we're going to get a World Series that we haven't seen before is kind yeah. of an exciting thing for baseball fans. I mean, I, I'd love the Braves to be in it. That would be fine with me, but they're not going to be in it every year. And as we've seen, you know, just going back with the numbers, the Yankees of what 99-2000 are the last club that's been able to repeat as a World Series champion. They did it, of course, another time in the 90s when they won what three in a row. Yeah, the Blue Jays who won back-to-back World Series. Prior to that, though, you don't find a lot of clubs, at least in my lifetime, that are winning the World Series two years in a row. It's hard enough to get there once, getting back there year after year. Now I, all the other rounds, too. I mean, it's so much. It's a it's a longer right. path. The, yeah. the playoffs just continue to to spread out. It used yep. to be, hey, win your league, you won the pennant, you're going to the World Series. It was that way until 1969 when division play became a deal, and you had the LCSs, then you had the LDSs that came in and became a full-time component with the uh, advent of having wild cards and all of that in the mid-'90s. So uh, a lot has certainly happened, and it's I would imagine as we see the postseason format for this year was affected travel-wise, particularly in the LDS play and even in LCS play a little bit, I think, um, and, and the, the wild card on top of that, um, based on not having as many days to travel thanks to the lockout pushing things back a couple of weeks. 
I'm interested to see if they do make some tweaks to what this playoff format is, but I'm not going to be surprised to see that they continue to push having this number of teams in the playoffs to try to force clubs to, you know, take a legitimate shot. And if you're looking at not having a repeat champion in, what, 22, 23 years now, maybe you should have a bunch of teams in the playoffs. It's not going anywhere. The, the money's too big. The yes. investment's too big. It, the expanded postseason isn't going anywhere. I've heard they like money in just about every business I've ever been involved right. in. And this is one of those businesses as well. Be that as it may, we will come on back. We'll talk about some news from around the rest of the big leagues over the past week. This is from the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more from the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios as we wrap things up here. A couple of hours of Braves and Major League Baseball talk. We'll be back with you again next Saturday, same time, 5 to 7. Look forward to having you along for the ride. And, of course, if you've enjoyed this show, if you want to catch anything you might have missed, including my interview with Stephen Vogt, make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you find your podcast or on the Odyssey app as well. Well, Corey, let's talk a little bit about some of the news that's happening. And we know that there's usually kind of a moratorium on big news that breaks throughout the course of the postseason and the World Series, though some people like to bend the rules a little bit. But clubs are hiring managers, and the one in particular that made that big hire was a big surprise, I think, to most, if not all, of the baseball world, and that is Bruce Bochy is now the manager of the Texas Rangers, signing a three-year deal to become their new skipper. He retired from the San Francisco Giants back in 2019 after 13 years at the helm there, three World Series titles, and a 25-year managerial career in which I full well expect will lead him to Cooperstown one day, but now he is back at the helm with a Rangers team that I think is continuing to try to make moves in their new ballpark to become a force in the American League West. This one's surprising, right? And I know that they're used to big hats in Texas, but I don't know that they're used to hats one this big. Eight and a eighth size hat, which is just ridiculously big. So I feel like I could camp in that thing. But obviously, you mentioned the, the resume there, three-time World Series champion, over 2,000 career wins. Really a change in direction for the Rangers, because you think about what they've largely done is go with first-time managers. Yeah. Um, so they they fired Chris Woodward, you know, and have gone with Bochy. And it, obviously, they you think about what they did last offseason. They commit half a billion dollars to Corey Seagram, Marcus yeah. Simeon, John double Gray. double play combo. Yeah, and, you know, they've got a left-hander, Martin Perez, who was an all-star, uh, who come back on a one-year deal. I expect this team is going to be so aggressive now. I mean, you, you don't make a move like Bruce Bochy to kind of say, okay, well, we've got a core no. and we're going to you know just develop guys. You make this kind of move to say, we're, we're coming in the AOS. Yeah, and they've got some young players, I think, who are also on the rise with them. But if you're going out and spending the kind of money you did on Seager and Simeon in particular, and, and John Gray to, a, and to an extent as well, because they're going to need pitching help, and that kind of brings me to my next point, there are some very big starting pitchers out there. Are the Rangers – a sleek and or sexy pick for, say, Jacob deGrom, because that sounds like the kind of splash the Texas Rangers might want to make, and not just to win the winter, but to have that starting pitcher that makes them that kind of club and a force to contend with. Yeah, I mean, I think you're going to hear Clayton Kershaw just being from Texas. And maybe Justin Verlander. Yeah, I mean, all those guys. Maybe you can pry Justin Verlander away from Houston and get him over to Arlington. But um, Kershaw, I think, is a really interesting name. We've heard talks of Kershaw with him before. Um, the one thing with him, though, is if he does come back, I think the medical staff with the Dodgers, they kind of know his, the ins and outs with mm-hmm. him, when to push, when to you know back off a little bit. I think that may be you know ultimately keeping him in L.A. But 
I think they 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 could you know be a, a Carlos Rodon. I mean, there's a just yeah. any any of yeah. those really big name guys that they could kind of you know lock up. I, I think they're definitely going to be in the mix, and they are not afraid to spend money as we saw last winter. Maybe that is where Jacob Degrom shows up. But it's worth noting that Steve Cohen said if he leaves New York, it's not going to be because of money. Well, Steve Cohen, if you read his Wikipedia page, has been known to play fast and loose with money over the course of his business career and, of course, the course of his ownership of the New York Mets. But that aside, I'm sure that the Mets are going to make a full-court press to have Jacob deGrom remain a big part of their club because when you are one of the, if not the best pitcher on the planet, at least for the last five years, there are going to be a lot of clubs that are going to want to have you around. So Jacob deGrom is going to have no shortage of suitors if, in fact, he does opt out of his deal, which is what the expectation is uh, the last couple of years of that and hit the free agent market this winter. And I know a lot of people have talked about the Braves perhaps being a fit for Jacob deGrom. I just don't know that the years and the money match up. But, you know, some of these other guys, whether it's Kershaw or whether it's Verlander, the one-year type deals that could really make your club that much better, when you're talking about somebody like Verlander who is in his 40s, who's not going to be out there seeking a four- or five-year deal, and that's just that's not how that works, Kershaw, could he look for a one- to two-year deal to sign somewhere else? Yes, but I think you just laid out going home to Texas seems like the kind of path that he would take if he is, in fact, going to leave Los Angeles or with Kershaw more so than anybody else, and certainly not DeGrom, retirement could be the next step that he takes just if that's the way he's leaning and he hasn't really made that full decision just yet. I think it's going to be hard to take Verlander away from Houston. He seems to be so tight with Jim Crane. I just he's got can't the option. See, yeah, and he has the option. I just can't see him see him leaving. And in terms of DeGrom, I mean, you think about, I talked about this earlier, the biggest single season deal the Braves have ever given out, not single season deal, but single season money that they've ever invested in one player was $23 million to Josh Donaldson in 2019. $48 million is the estimated market value of Jacob DeGrom. So you're talking about more than double that. And I don't think he's going for short term here. I think anything he gets is going to be, this is, you know, this is the last big deal that Jacob DeGrom is going to get, and I just yeah. can't see him taking something on the short end. I would agree with that as well. I'm not sure he's going to get $48 million. I know that's you know that, yeah. that yeah. number is not necessarily just for folks who are, are wondering, hey, how's he going to get $48 million? Yeah. What are you guys, crazy? Yeah, that's Nobody's just... getting that money. That's not exactly what that means. It just means the overall value Correct. that would be you know um, commensurate with what his wins above replacement, what his overall production on the field is. That's, just, that's a value term, not an – expected sticker price for Jacob deGrom. Uh, That aside, though, I mean, if you look at what Max Scherzer got last year, $43 million from the New York Mets, can you honestly look, if you're the New York Mets, at Jacob deGrom and say, well, he's worth $43 million, but you, we're not so sure, (laughs) because that would not be the great way to start the negotiations for Steve Cohen or anybody else. No. Uh, And and again, I mean, can you have two guys making that within the same rotation? And the other thing, and we've talked about this on the show before, that I, I just find it fascinating because I'll never see this much money in my life, but Max Scherzer's getting his $43 million from the New York Mets. He's also started getting his deferred money from the Washington Nationals yes, from his last monstrous contract. So Max Scherzer got a $43 million check from the New York Mets in, in, in installments and a $15 million check from the Washington Nationals. So he's a $58 million pitcher this year, just Unreal. in case you're scoring at home. And why wouldn't you be? Because that's house money. Um, but that aside, I mean, it, clearly Jacob DeGrom's going to be one of the guys that you're going to hear on this show and every other baseball hot stove show until that saga is decided. And even when it is, what the fallout will be to some of the other pieces. So, as they say, stay tuned. Once the hot stove really kicks up and free agency starts in full, we'll know a little bit more about what Jacob deGrom is thinking and if, in fact, he does opt out, which was the report that Buster Olney of ESPN put out there quite a few months ago. A managerial news was not just that Bruce Bochy is going to be joining the Texas Rangers as their new skipper, but, of course, 
We know the White Sox. We talked about the White Sox probably more than we should have this year and never for what felt like a good reason. This was everybody's pick to just run away, really, with the American League Central. But the big question mark was Tony La Russa managing this club. That turned out, for health reasons, among other things, to be cut short. And La Russa announced a week or two ago that he will not be returning as a manager of the White Sox, and they'll now be looking for a, a new manager. But could they also be looking for... An old manager, because there are reports out there they're going to uh, they're going to interview Ozzie Guillen, who piloted them to the 2005 World Series title. That would certainly be a reunion, and probably not one a lot of people had coming. If White Sox fans were disappointed enough with the past season, they also went and canceled their fan fest due to s- several factors in quotation marks. So they just keep piling up the disappointment level there. But they're you know they're obviously they're going to they're going to be hiring somebody new. They've been you know reportedly in, interested in the Astros bench coach Joe Espada, mm-hmm. uh, Royals bench coach uh, Pedro uh, Grifoil, and Ron Washington uh, here in Atlanta, who's yeah. another obviously uh, sexy name I think for a lot of teams. But Guillen is interesting. I mean, obviously he you know he was fired 160 games into the 2011 season. Um, but he is the last guy to win a World Series on the south side of Chicago. So he has that experience. He has that winning, you know, experience in in uh, with this organization. So maybe he does make sense for this team. But you know, I just I, I think they need somebody. Uh, the skews a little bit younger because it just seems to me that you know going with the kind of retread approach for them just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, you know, obviously you know you've got you know a guy in in Guillen who's done it before, but you had a guy in Larusa who'd done it before. So um, to me though, I mean, I, I just don't know how many times we have to watch these coaching. And I know a lot of people in Atlanta are not going to want to hear this because nobody wants to stop seeing Ron Washington giving the you know the, the windmill sign there at third base and waving guys home. This guy's due. I mean, Ron Washington is due for another opportunity to manage a team. So be it the White Sox, you know, be it the the Marlins, you know, I just I just think you've gotten to the point with him where whatever happened in the past, he's he's more than remade his image. He's become this guru when it comes to defensive work. Uh, I just think it's it's time. It's time for Ron Washington to get an opportunity. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. Of course, was that with Ron Washington reportedly on the list for the White Sox, and I would imagine other clubs that if they decide to make managerial changes, and and he's been on lists, different lists uh, over the last few years as well, of at least people that you'd want to make that phone call and decide, oh, you are interested. And if you are, would you want to have an interview? But you know, Ron Washington, in his time with the Texas Rangers, leading them to the World Series a couple of times, and and not being able to win it, but a, a team that was winning perennially 90-plus games and was certainly in that mix. And I don't know if they'd be interested in, you know, maybe before the Bruce Bochy move of having a, a wash reunion. Clearly they went another direction that really nobody saw coming, but I just can't imagine that his name hasn't come up in a lot of different conversations for managerial um, openings over the past few years. Now that all aside, and we love Ron Washington here in Atlanta, I mean, it's amazing to see how much of an important piece and 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 part of this Braves culture this guy has become because you really just don't usually think about your third base coach and you know your infield instructor becoming a cult hero but that's exactly what Wash has become here in Atlanta. Yeah, and I you know it's not even just here, you know, in in Atlanta. I mean, he you know, you go back to guys that he worked with, you know, back in Oakland. I mean, he told me the story one time that when Eric Chavez won a gold glove uh with the the Oakland A's that when Wash came in the spring tra- and when they got to spring training uh, that next season, that sitting on his chair at his locker was Eric Chavez's gold glove, and he was giving it to Wash because he said, "I'm not winning this without the you know, the help and, and support and development right. that I got from you." And I just think that just speaks volumes to what he is to so many different people. And 
you know, obviously, you know, there's been so many, we all see the video of him working pregame with everybody and just, yeah. you know, the relentless work that he puts in with guys in the infield uh, pregame prep. And I mean, it's just, he's just had such a major influence on guys and their ability to get better in that department that I just, I would really be surprised if he's ultimately not in charge of a team very soon. He really has. And I haven't seen any poll results come back or any research that's come back in from any particular precinct that would be in charge of this, but how many third base coaches do you think are getting their own bobblehead day? Because yeah. I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. there's too many. I mean, it's not just the yeah. bobblehead day. It's the the Ron Washington windmill bobblehead. So you've got, like, various points of articulation here on this it's, thing, which is yeah, a, a pretty big deal. Speaking of which, I think the Braves might have set some kind of unofficial record, at least for the franchise, of how many bobblehead days they had this past season because it was an incredible run of bobbleheads for just about any and everybody it felt like. It's worth noting that Walt Weiss, uh, another member obviously of Brian Snicker's staff, reportedly turned down an interview with the Marlins. So, so they will he, not be making him a bobblehead in Miami? Probably not. Okay. Well, maybe, you know, maybe it's it's literally him, you know, like... Waving goodbye, you know, waving no, thank goodbye, you. Yeah. Just go on to the next stop. That's right. Yeah, Walt Weiss is a guy that it, clearly we knew when coming in, and this is one of the fascinating things about Brian Snitker's staff, of course, is having former managers on that bench, and I feel like it has made the whole club, the organization, and I don't mean the Braves organization, I mean how they organize this club and how they're able to lead this club so much more streamlined and effective because you have very clear voices. I think a lot of people would have wondered, well, how, we got too many managers here, too many conflicting voices and methods, but that's just not the truth here. All these guys seem to just fit together so well that it, it really has, I think, made the Braves. It's been one of those X factors that we talk about it, but I don't know if we talk about it enough. Sometimes I think you get in situations with man, with staffs where you've got guys that say, okay, well, I'm here, but I want to be there. Right. And, and they, they don't have that because no. these guys have been there. Now, maybe that that doesn't mean that they, that won't leave for another that they job. eventually right. don't want that opportunity again. But you can be a little bit more content in taking that step back because you've been to that level before. You understand, you know, all the the the, the guy at the top is dealing with. But you can kind of take that step back and focus on what your job is and be content in that job. And I think that's what they've got with Ron Washington and Walt Weiss is two guys who have been there, but now they're mm-hmm. content in this opportunity. If the other one comes along, they won't they won't necessarily you know bat an eye at it. But they're they're content in the what they have now in terms of working with these guys. Yeah, and the continuity that it has brought along from a leadership standpoint for this club is just one of the many things I think that has helped the Braves, you know, go from a team that was very much in the rebuild and very much, not, not you know, without direction, but to make very clear, this is who we are. This is how we how we prepare. This is how we play. And, and we're going to come back in. We're going to do it the next day. And I don't know that anybody exemplifies that any more so than Ron Washington, because for every video that you've seen of him working with somebody before the game, go ahead and multiply it by six or seven every single day. And that's just the on-field work. And then you start thinking about the things that go on behind the scenes or on days where you just don't see anything at all. But uh, tremendous work as always for him and tremendous work by you, Corey, right here on From the Diamond. I appreciate it as always. It's something we should do again next week, I think. I think so. That, that hot stove is just getting a little, just a little tad bit hotter. We're gonna, well, we're going to go out. We're going to make our shopping list, like and it. we're going to hit the store, and then we're going to come back and really turn that stove on and cook up something good. And hopefully, Alex Antopoulos and company will be doing that as well. That'll wrap us up here on From the Diamond for this week. Dom, as always, thank you for your help. Corey, thank you. And thank you for listening out there. This has been From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley for Corey McCartney. We will catch you next week. And until then, so long, everyone. <laughs>